welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is George Ray, and I am your host. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Tamara McCaw. She holds a PhD in environmental management from Yale University and currently serves as an assistant professor of management at Ben Gurion University. She also heads the Macaw Circular Economy Lab and has recently been very interested in the environmental impacts of an increasing global sharing economy. Of particular importance to our conversation today is a paper she recently co-wrote with students Tamar Mishulam and Sarah Goldberg entitled, The Environmental Impacts of the Sharing Economy, a Systematic Review and Synthesis of Existing Empirical Evidence. This paper undertakes a first of its kind literature review in an attempt to better understand the impacts of the digital sharing economy on the environment. When you hear digital sharing economy, you probably think about Uber or Airbnb. And those are big players, no doubt. But there are many different aspects of the digital sharing economy. E-scooters, food sharing, clothes sharing, even yacht sharing. And that entire apparatus has largely been painted with a broad brush as environmentally friendly. So Tamar and her team undertook their research with a broad brush as well, trying to answer the question of whether these innovations are really changing our environmental outlook for the better. She will get into what they learned on today's podcast. Tamar authored this paper through her involvement with the Network for Digital Economy and Environment, a collaborative project funded by the Sloan Foundation involving the Environmental Law Institute, Yale's School for the Environment, and UC Berkeley's Center for Law, Energy, and Environment. Tamar, thank you for being here today. To get us started, most people have a concept of the digital sharing economy centered in big names like Uber or Airbnb, but what exactly is the digital sharing economy? So that's actually a really, really important and much more complicated question than it might seem at first. So I would say that the working definition of the digital sharing economy is a network made out of users, apps, platforms, and ICT devices, right? So it's this digital space where people can go to connect with other peers or other companies and source or or gain access to goods that they don't own. Or they can also use these platforms to lease out the goods that they do own to other people, right? So in that sense, the digital sharing economy is kind of a facilitator to increasing utilization of stuff we already have and has already been produced. However, since mankind has been sharing, you know, from, you know, for a millennia, basically, right, we've been sharing food, we've been sharing um, farming goods and supplies, we've been sharing books, right? So a library is a really classic example of a centralized ownership structure for sharing. There's an entity that owns all the books, we don't need to buy them, we can just go in and access these goods, right? We don't need to be the owners. But a library wouldn't be considered as something that we can call the digital sharing economy, even though today my library might have an app. So I would say that it gets complicated in the sense that it's really an amorphic definition where kind of 
any form of access-based consumption can be included under the sharing economy, but it's more of whether this type of sharing existed before this concept you know, began to struck root around 2010, where it's also often called collaborative consumption. So it's a matter of timing, whether this model existed before or after, and uh, uh, an issue of self-definition. So does this platform or does this body self-identify as belonging to the sharing economy or not? That's very interesting that you talk about these other sharing models that are kind of distinct from this buzzword of digital sharing economy. So can you talk a little more about the environmental impacts of this digital sharing economy and you know, what led you to tackle environmental impacts in this space? Well, this came out of a really a practical need that we identified. So there's lots of, you know, talk around and policies and major investments, financial investments being poured into the digital sharing economy with this promise, right, that the sharing economy would reduce environmental impacts because we would be facilitating better utilization of existing product stocks, right? So the sharing economy has been painted in very pink, bright colors or green, bright colors, right? It's supposed to be very social because it gives everyone access. It's supposed to be very environmental because we wouldn't need so much stuff, right? So for example, the basic gist is my car sits in the parkway 95% of the time, right? So that's the average statistics. Parks, cars are currently parked about 95% of the time. This means that 95% of the time, this car is sitting idle. What if instead of just sitting there in my parkway, I could give access to someone else to use my car and they would go driving it around town instead of it just sitting there doing nothing, right? So, So the idea here is that if we could only better utilize all the stuff that we've already produced and we already own, we wouldn't need to produce so much. Right. So we could make do with smaller car stocks. We could make do with smaller housing stocks or hotel stocks. Right. Because we wouldn't need all these hotel rooms. People can just stay in a vacant apartment that someone happens to when someone happens to be traveling for business or abroad. Right. But all these assumptions and and common assertions that a lot of the funding plays on are not actually supported by any empirical evidence. So when we started looking into this, we, 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 we discovered that, in fact, the evidence base points in very different directions and that in some cases, sharing can actually increase and not only decrease environmental burden. And in this paper, one of the phrases you come back to is this phrase use intensity. I know you mm-hmm. kind of hinted at it in your last answer, but can you talk about what exactly that means and how it connects to the expected environmental outcomes of the sharing economy? So use intensity is the idea that products have a lifespan. So a wedding dress, right, is something that can be used more than once. But in reality, most people buy a wedding dress to wear it on that one special night. And then perhaps it hangs in the closet for another, you know, 50 years until someone throws it out. So what if instead of using this dress only once, right? What if instead of producing a dress only to wear it that one night, 
we would wear it again and again and again, or other people would wear it again and again and again and again, right? So in that sense, we'll need to produce one dress, but it can serve several brides or several people. That would mean that the intensity in which we use the dress has increased, right? We're utilizing it better. And that's basically the idea of use intensity. And that's also the fundamental premise of why people assume that the sharing economy would deliver environmental benefits, because we have to invest resources and energy and effort into producing stuff that then sits in our closet or sits in our driveway. If we could only use these things that are now idle, reduce the idle time, right? We would increase the use intensity. This is basically um, the same idea as reducing idle time. And we could increase use intensity and we could make do with fewer product stocks. So fewer physical products, one dress for many brides, one book, for many students, one car for many families. You just mentioned a couple of pretty distinct things, you know, dresses, books, we've talked about Uber. Why undertake this research altogether? Why not focus on something like just the environmental impact of food sharing, a topic you've worked on in a significant way previously? Well, I think that the main answer to that is because we think that the environmental impacts or we have this uh, hypothesis that the environmental impact might actually vary by the type of research that's being shared, right? So once we started to figure that sharing isn't really inherently environmentally beneficial, we started asking, okay, what are the potential factors that might affect the environmental uh, performance of different types of sharing platforms, right? So one option was that car sharing simply is, you know, more or less environmental than goods sharing for various reasons, right? We need to put fuel in the car, um, a wedding dress we only need to clean and so on. It doesn't have any, a lot of use phase impact. So so that's why we we wanted to look at the entire landscape of research into the sharing economy and try to figure out or tease out the factors and the underlying mechanisms that might shape the environmental performance. And in order to do this, you spent a lot of time with this research, reviewing over 1,500 papers and ultimately performing analysis on 153 papers. If you can, in a sentence, what did you find? So what we found reviewing the evidence across different disciplines and different um, you know, types of shared platforms and different resources shared is that the common assertion that sharing is more environmentally benign by nature lacks empirical grounding. Uh, in other words, there is no simple answer to is sharing good or bad for the environment. It really depends. So we synthesized lots of research, right? And, and basically what we found was conflicting results. While in some cases, people say that sharing is better, in others, they say they find that sharing is, is worse from an environmental perspective. So one thing that did come out really um, clearly was that ride hailing emerged as a particularly harmful type of sharing. So ride hailing would be your Uber, so basically, when I rent not only the vehicle, but basically again access to a vehicle plus driver, right? So the substitution of a taxi, Uber, Lyft, and so on. 
So, so I would say that, that these are two main things that came out. And in terms of more specific results, I would say that also lots of the basic assumptions that people have about the sharing economy really didn't hold. So for example, sharing doesn't necessarily lead to a reduction in overall stocks. So it doesn't re- car sharing doesn't or, or shared mobility doesn't really always lead to a reduction in the number of you know registered new cars and it might also have high environmental costs just in terms of supportive logistics. And the last thing that I want to mention is that when we think of sharing, we often think that it displaces these more polluting types of consumption, right? When I think of Uber and I say, what is it displacing? I think of it displacing me taking my gasoline SUV back and forth just to get somewhere and then half an hour looking for parking. Oish, you know, terrible. But in practice, Uber often doesn't displace single occupancy car rides. It displaces public transport. It displaces train rides and bus rides and walking, right? So, so I think that that's another critical aspect that we, we tend to neglect when we're trying to think about or imagine, envision the potential benefits of sharing. One thing you do find in your paper is that smaller sharing platforms are more likely to have positive environmental impacts than larger ones. Can you give an example of a large and small sharing platform and theorize about why we might see this type of patterning? So this is a really interesting finding that came out. And um, an example for a big sharing platform could be Uber or Airbnb, of course. And an example for a smaller one could be, for example, Olio, which is a food sharing platform. But we could also look at these things within the same domain. So so this result came out as um, something of a bit of a surprise to us because we typically assume that economies of scale are more efficient, right? So, you know, the bigger my factory, the more efficient I can be at producing one unit of product. And here there seems to be something that might not really work in the same way. So I wanna say that one potential explanation for this finding is that most of the research simply focuses on these bigger well-known platforms and they might be held to more scrutiny than the smaller one. So there's definitely a chance that there's some selection bias involved here. So noting that, there's also another explanation. So one of the big questions that remains open is whether sharing platforms become less environmental as they scale up, or if it's the ones that have the potential to scale up that are not as environmental to begin with. And this is something that I can't really I don't have a good answer for it. This is, you know, for future research. But one of our hypotheses is that as platforms scale, they actually require more and more supportive operational logistics, right? So I might need to rebalance the stocks of e-scooters, shift them from one part of the city to another to meet consumer demand at different peaks or rush times of the day, right? During times, uh, diff- during different uh, times of day. I, As I scale up, an Uber driver might be able to catch a ride a bit further away from their home than if it were just a really super localized 
car hailing platform that is only within New York City, for example. So I, I um, a couple of months ago, I went to a conference in Maine and I landed at Newark and I took an Uber all the way up to Maine from Newark. And the guy driving me had actually come from Vermont that morning driving someone over, right? So the distances become longer and the time that he was traveling without a passenger and the distances that he covered without passengers were simply larger because Uber is available throughout the US, right? So there's there might be something there that when the activity is no longer marginal, but it's mainstream, becomes mainstream, it's something that people can bank on, maybe that somehow affects their behavior and increases the environmental impacts. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation and definitely touches on this idea that even if there is a positive environmental impact, initially, that's not always the whole story. I know you write about rebound effects in this paper, as well as another paper you recently published, particularly regarding rebound effects in food sharing. What is the definition of a rebound effect and how does it influence this environmental calculus? Huh. So much like sharing, definitions of rebound effect are diverse in breadth and depth. Uh, but in essence, rebound effect is the contrast between the potential and the actual benefits of uh, an efficiency improvement, right? So it's generally defined as the absolute or relative difference between the centris parabius, so the expected environmental benefits, for example, the expected energy saving that I would have from replacing an old light bulb with more efficient LED lights, all else being equal, right? And the actual environmental benefits of switching um, um, these lights, which also takes into account changes in lighting costs, in the fact that I might leave my lights on uh, longer just because it costs me less or I don't feel as guilty because I know it's not as polluting and so on. So in, in short, the rebound effect is basically the difference between the expected potential environmental benefits and actual environmental benefits of different efficiency improvements. So in that sense, the sharing economy is thought of as something that would improve the efficiency in which we use existing products, right? So again, going back to the example of the dress, I would only need to produce one dress, right? So I would only need, let's say, 100 kilo of cotton and dye and electricity to produce one dress. But now with these inputs, I can fulfill the wedding services required by, let's say, 50 brides, right? So I'm 50 times more efficient at producing this dress. If originally I would only think of having one wedding dress for my fabulous three-day uh, <laughs> event in the Caribbean, hopefully, then now because renting a dress, uh, renting a shared dress or gaining access to a shared dress is so much cheaper and easier, maybe I'll take three, one for each day, right? So that would be a good example for wedding dress rebound. Another example we can think about is from food sharing, right? So for example, if I now save a lot of money because I basically source shared food for free from my neighbors and community instead of going to the supermarket, maybe I save a lot of money 
And then I take this money and I use it instead to go traveling or to heat my house or to buy a plane ticket, right? So there's different ways that rebound can manifest. One of them is direct. I would increase the consumption of the same type of product. And then the other version is indirect rebound, where I would use the cost savings that I have now gained on other goods and services. And in the sharing economy, this respending rebound can come from two sources. So it might be me as the you know, passenger of an Uber that now Uber costs me less. So perhaps instead of walking home, I take an Uber because I'm lazy because I can afford it. Perhaps I can now afford to take Ubers everywhere because they save me time because I don't need to look for parking, right? And on the other hand, perhaps I can respend the money that I save from taking an Uber on buying myself a new dress. On the other hand, the Uber driver also gains additional income from being an Uber driver. What do they do with their money? Same for an Airbnb apartment host, right? So my mother um, lives in Tel Aviv and she has this apartment in an amazing location. And she visits my sister in Los Angeles once or twice a year. And she used to lease out her flat via Airbnb while she was traveling. But recently she's become so used to the income coming in from these Airbnb leases that she has that she literally um, rented herself out of the apartment for a month by accident <laughs> during a time when she wasn't even traveling, right? So she ended up driving around the street just because she wanted that additional income, which she could later spend on traveling uh, to visit my sister three times a year instead of just twice now. That's a really perfect anecdote, I think, to demonstrate this point. And something that I think we've all seen in our lives is, you know, taking that extra income and using it in different ways that may not be great for the environment, even if they're great on a personal level. So when you consider, you know, all of these impacts, the environmental impacts, including the rebound effects, kind of the whole scale of it all, what is an example of a sharing platform that's contributing positively and ones that's contributing negatively? Well, I think, you know, research is really um, focused on mobility, on shared mobility, and specifically car sharing and ride hailing, which car sharing would be your car to goes, where you would lease the car, and then Uber would be ride hailing, where you would basically take um, a car plus the driver, right? So that would be more similar to a taxi in essence. So ride hailing has emerged the Uber, right, example, has emerged as a particularly uh, environmentally harmful type of sharing. So that's one that's really singled out. There's a lot of research on it. And I think that, you know, we could we could say that with some confidence by now. And then examples of better environmental performing platforms are actually the food sharing that I mentioned before. So food sharing, food is perishable in nature there's really a lower chance of us over consuming food just because it was free. I mean, maybe to some extent, if it's like really, really good, uh, I don't know, produce or chocolate or something like that. But we can't, you know, like we're not going to start consuming 5,000 calories just because they're free. So food sharing really happens at the local level 
because people tend to not want to drive one hour just to collect a loaf of bread. It's just not worth it. So it tends to be hyper-localized. It tends to deal with perishable items that are otherwise going to landfill and emitting methane while they're at it, right? While decomposing in landfills. So, so food sharing is really one of the better ones, I would say. So shifting a little bit to, you know, the results of this paper, how has it been received so far? <laughs> so, you know, much like the results are mixed, but lean towards the negative and specifically in mobility, the reactions or the responses have also been mixed. So I think that it's very hard for people to think about these second order system level effects. So thinking, one of my wonderful students, Tamar Mishulam, who is actually the lead author on this paper, she had got into this really lengthy Facebook or Twitter, I don't remember which social media outlet it was, a discussion with, with people who told her that, why are you saying these negative things about Uber? Uber is the best. We need Uber right now. Let's bring it here, let's all use Uber, it saves car, it saves this, it saves that. So I think that people often want to believe what they kind of already believe. And it's very hard for them to see that reality or evidence, right, doesn't always agree with them. And, and this is particularly true for things that are more complicated, and you really can't compare them on a unit to unit basis. So it's really inaccurate to compare a single Uber drive from the minute the driver picks you up until the minute he drops you off to uh, ride in a privately owned vehicle. It's just, we need to look at the broader um, picture here and understand that these new consumption modes are also changing how much we consume, right? Or whether or not we consume at all. So for example, there's ample evidence that car sharing and, and in general, shared mobility actually displaces more environmentally benign forms of transport like walking or public transportation. So if I start taking a shared bike um, instead of you know a shared electric bike or a shared electric scooter instead of taking the train or the bus or, or walking, right, which micromobility often displaces walking because it's really meant for short distances, then there's really no environmental benefits here. There might be welfare benefits, there might be social benefits, there might be economic benefits, but in terms of environmental impacts overall, we're not going to see a reduction. So for somebody listening and you know hearing you and thinking, I really want to be better. I want my piece of the digital sharing economy to contribute to sustainability goals. How can they do that? How can users leverage their power in this situation? And what can platforms be doing as well? So I think that there are different things that users, people, consumers can do to lower the environmental impact of their sharing activities. And one is that they really need to be mindful of what it's displacing. So if I'm taking an Uber instead of walking, that's never going to be better from an environmental standpoint, right? It, it just isn't. So if it's added consumption, then I'm better off not doing it. And when I am sharing, in general, being a bit more patient, right? Not needing everything to be here right now, right this minute. So for example, if I wanna rent a dress and 
I'm saying, okay, but I needed to be here tomorrow, most chances it's going to be flown in, right? Because the logistics required behind it is just like, there's no way of getting addressed to my house by tomorrow without flying it in. If I had give it one month, then that would work better. So I would say, try to be mindful of the supportive operational logistics that are required to facilitate sharing. So for example, if I can wait 10 more minutes for my Uber ride, that would substantially lower its environmental impacts because it would allow the system to optimize um, who is going to come pick me up and choose someone that's actually closer to where I am right now. So a bit more patience, a bit more waiting, sharing within sharing, right? So using Uber Pool or just Pool Rides, which is another platform, that would actually be better than taking a single passenger Uber any day of the week, right? So, so these things really matter. This is kind of the same for platforms. They need to be minded of their supportive logistics and the environmental implications that they have. And also potentially, they need to be uh, mindful of potential rebound effects. So it's, it's very hard to tell a company, don't grow as much because maybe it would mean that your logistics support is starting, like we'll go over a tipping point and it'll start being more, it'll start doing more harm than good, right? But still, I would encourage platforms to, to keep that in mind and then try to minimize logistic operational requirements to an absolute minimum. Well, that makes sense. And Tamar, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a very eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.